Leonardo da Vinci, Sir Isaac Newton, the Wright brothers, Orville and Wilbur Wright, Benjamin Franklin, Rosa Parks, Florence Nightingale, Susanna Wesley, Henry Ford, Steve Jobs, William Tyndale, the apostles of the New Testament. Among these individuals, there are many things that would characterize them as very different from one another. I mean, think for a minute. Who would put Rosa Parks, Steve Jobs, and the Apostle Paul in the same paragraph? I mean, these are all very unique and different people. They are different in gender. They had different jobs. The generations and context in which they were born, all the way to how long they lived, were quite different. And not to mention all the trials that checkered their lives, the size of their families, but even the causes of their death. And then there's the obvious spectrum of what their religious affiliation was, or the lack thereof. I mean, just consider a very brief description of some of these famous men and women throughout history. An Italian man who played a key person in the birth of the European Renaissance. An English mathematician, physicist, and scientist who would be widely regarded as one of the most influential scientists of all time, developing new laws of mechanics, gravity, and the laws of motion. The inventors of the world's first successful airplane, the founder of modern nursing, the designer of the first Macintosh computer. Anyone remember that? Floppy disk in before my time? This gentleman would also be the brains behind iTunes and iPads and the iPhone, which has become virtually universally known by most people living in this technological age. Or how about a mother who didn't have a worldwide platform, but she raised two boys who did? the mother of John and Charles Wesley, being the mother of these two boys that were greatly used of God in the spread of the gospel, and really thousands of hymns were written by Charles. England and America and the Christian landscape as we know it today was radically affected by these men's ministries. These men who came from that mom, the mother of Methodism, they called her. Friends, amidst all these differences, one thing that characterizes each one of these men and women is that their life and their life's accomplishments help shape human history. Their goals or mission in life, their ambitions in their work, the convictions that were deep in their hearts would eventually spill over and touch scores of lives for generations to follow. You might even say their unique callings from God have left fingerprints on some of the callings on our lives, too, in ways that we probably don't even realize this morning. Their footprints have paved the way for many who have since followed behind them and were inspired by what they did. You know, it's been said of honorable and dedicated mothers like Susanna Wesley, women who took their roles seriously as mothers, that the hand that rocks the cradle is the hand that rules the world. And in a similar way, there were men in the first century who would be used to spread the gospel called the apostles. They were men known as men who turned the world upside down. World changers. Human history shapers. These bright shooting stars soared through the dark sky of just living a status quo life. 
influencing and affecting the world we live in. And they never left the world the same. You see, it all began when someone did something that had never been done before. Someone stepped out into the unknown to pave the way. Someone carved out a new path for others to benefit from and follow behind. These men and women in their own way and in their own time were heroic and influential trailblazers. Brothers and sisters, we're, we're sitting in a Christian church this morning. And we know how and when Chaffee Crossing Baptist Church came about. September 2020. But friends, let's roll the tape back a little further than that. How and when did Christianity begin? Who paved the way? Who overcame the greatest obstacles to carve out the narrow way that leads us to God? Friends, who is the trailblazer for the faith that we hold so dear this morning? And to that question, I invite you to open your Bibles to the Gospel of Mark. Mark chapter 1. If you're using the chair Bibles provided, you can find that on page 488. Mark chapter 1. This morning, we're continuing our sermon series through the Gospel of Mark. And we will pick up where we left off last week. Last week, we were introduced to what the good news about Jesus Christ is all about. We learned how from ancient prophecies or promises that God made a long time ago, that God would one day send a final prophet that would pave the way. He would carve out or pave a straight path for the arrival of the Lord himself on earth. The prophet or long-awaited messenger that the Old Testament book of Malachi foretold would come one day was also revealed as the voice of one crying in a Judean wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. Make his paths straight. Well, who fit the bill for this prophecy? Who was the one chosen to put their feet in those shoes. Well, this prophecy in Isaiah 40 verse 3 was fulfilled by a man named John. You can look down in Mark chapter 1 verse 4. You see it pretty clearly. John appeared. This is John the Baptist. Not John the Southern Baptist, but John the Baptist. John the baptizer, as he would be more commonly known as. Mark 6 verse 4. 14. You know, one thing that made John's public appearance to Israel so unique, beyond his unique protein diet of locust, was that his ministry came on the heels of 400 years of silence. Four centuries had passed since the loudspeakers were turned up in heaven when God's people had heard the voice of their covenant-keeping God. Approximately 400 years had passed since the prophecy was made by God through Malachi to the people of Israel. So as we would expect, when John's ministry hit the press, when the Twitter feed caught a captive audience about this man, word traveled pretty quick. Quicker than hearing about new restaurants burn in the ears of Fort Smith residents. People came from all sorts of places. They, they came out of the woodworks. A man who dressed in a very unique way, who was on a very unique mission. A man, when he preached, preached like the prophets of old. He wasn't mama called, he was God called. A man, when he preached, preached with the thunder of boldness and the lightning of a divinely ordained message. And yet, this powerful, strange, obscure preacher did not preach about himself, but he preached about one that was greater and more powerful than himself. 
We learned last week in Mark 1, verses 1 to 8, that John's ministry wasn't just something he decided to make up. He wasn't just kind of bored or had a midlife crisis or he just wanted to get famous by starting a website and a nonprofit advertising to his Jewish buddies for a weekly Bible study that they could come to, take it or leave it. No, John's ministry came with a heavenly authority, an urgent message given to him by God that demanded the attention of the crowds in Israel in order to prepare them for the arrival of the Messiah, the Christ, the anointed one, the suffering servant. We read about in Isaiah, of whom the spirit of the Lord would empower and commission to be a light for the nations so that salvation would shoot off like a rocket from Jerusalem and touch to the ends of the earth. This preparatory ministry would be characterized and emphasized by the need for all sinners to publicly declare their repentance to God by first humbling themselves of their own depravity, confessing with their mouth loud and clear their own sinfulness, renouncing their trust in dead religion, holding on to the coattails of their Jewish heritage or any form of self-righteousness. And instead, they were to turn in faith to God's promise to receive the Messiah that was soon to come. You might ask, how exactly did John create this sign-up process? I mean, was there a Google Doc form they could pull out in their Jewish IMAX? How did people know what they were supposed to do with his message? What were they to do? How were they to respond to this call to renounce and turn their back on perhaps everything they'd ever known? I mean, what was John telling them to do? Friends, John was telling them to come out of the closet of living in unrepentant sin and unbelief and declare war against their own sin. You see, John called people to publicly display their repentance, not by a private confession somewhere in a dark alley, but to be baptized by John publicly in the Jordan River. John came, Mark says, with a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, Mark 1, verse 4. But as the crowds came to hear and respond to what he had to say, John was adamant. He was earnest to emphasize that his ministry, though very significant, was inferior to the one whose ministry he came to prepare for. You see, John's ministry would simply bring sinners into the lobby of God's kingdom. But it was the Messiah that would be the main attraction in God's kingdom. So that sinners, once and for all, would behold the Lamb of God who has come to take away the sin of the world. So who is this main attraction? Who is the centerpiece that the hearts of sinners desperately need? Who is the Lamb of God who had this superior ministry over John? Well, did you remember last week what John said in Mark 1, verses 7 and 8? Look down with me. He said, after me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he, will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. The one that would baptize repentant sinners with the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit was a God-sent trailblazer, a divinely called trailblazer who would pave the way 
for sinners to be reconciled to God. And he would be a triumphant trailblazer who would provide victory for sinners by overcoming our ancient foe. This morning, we pick up in Mark's Gospel, chapter 1, starting in verse 9. Please follow with me if you have a copy of God's Word. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And the voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son. With you, I am well pleased. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days, being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals. And the angels were ministering to him. This is the word of God. If you're taking notes, here's the kind of the main idea of the sermon. And put it on your refrigerator like a magnet. It's so short. Don't worry. The sermon's not short. Jesus is the trailblazer for our salvation, who is loved by God and hated by Satan. Jesus is the trailblazer for our salvation, who is loved by God and hated by Satan. Now, I have an outline to give you a little shape that kind of drills down a little deeper and expounds upon some of those terms so that we can kind of meditate, almost like a marinade of a juicy steak. We can think deeper and closer about what this scene is that we just read about. So point number one, Jesus is the Father's beloved trailblazer sent to personally identify with those he came to save. And number two, Jesus is our triumphant trailblazer who resisted and overcame our ancient adversary. Let's jump right into the text. We see right there in verse 9, so look with me, Mark 1, verse 9, where Mark points us directly to the one John the Baptist was speaking of in verses 7 and 8. He says this, In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee. Uh, This is the Jesus that Mark opened up with in Mark 1, verse 1, in the very first verse, right out of the starting block. And he's referred to in verse 1, if you notice there, as the Christ. Did you see that? Jesus Christ? Listen, Christ is not Jesus' last name. That's not what would show up on the driver's license for Jesus if he was driving his, you know, first century uh, coupe. Christ is a title. It's a title of an anointing. It means Messiah. The anointed deliverer sent by God to conquer the enemies of God's people and to save them from their sins. And it says that Jesus came from Atlanta. No, no. He came from Nazareth. Of Galilee. Now, unlike many other cities that are spoken about in the Gospels, Nazareth was virtually an unspoken place. Really, it's never even talked about in the Old Testament, like we'll find other communities throughout the Gospels. In fact, one of his earliest disciples commented on how random and how obscure a town like Nazareth was for someone with any clout to them any importance about them. Nathaniel, do you remember in John chapter 1, verse 46, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Nazareth wasn't exactly on the top 10 places you would want to take your family on vacation or your wife on a honeymoon. It was small, and it was filled with people who probably lived a quiet and rather modest lifestyle. Not a whole lot to it. 
Just so you know, if you're not familiar with the Bible, Nazareth is not where Jesus was actually born. Uh, That was actually Bethlehem, the city of David, where his earthly father, Joseph, was from. You can read more about that in Luke chapter 2. But Nazareth was eventually where Jesus would be brought up. This was his growing up years. We don't have a lot in the Gospels about Jesus' upbringing, but we do know that he was the son of a carpenter named Joseph, who was also a carpenter himself. Matthew 13, 55, Mark 6, verse 3. Nazareth was a small community, probably no bigger than Lavaca, Alan, possibly. I'm not sure what the recent census said, but commentators say that Nazareth might have been a max of 2,000 people in Jesus' day. Nazareth wasn't really all that impressive, as we know from Nathaniel's own convent. It was located about 70 miles north of Jerusalem in Galilee, which is the region west of the Jordan and the Sea of Galilee and north of Samaria. Anyway, Mark tells us in chapter 1 something quite interesting that happened at the Jordan River. The crowds gathered. Could you imagine it? Mass crowds, Pharisees and Sadducees with their arms folded on the riverbank, scoffing, looking down upon this John the Baptizer character, while hordes of people lined up. A long line, like being at Disney, perhaps. And they're getting down into the Jordan River to receive their discipleship dunking. And many did decide that day, to put their feet in that murky water, waiting on their turn to be baptized by John in front of all their friends, in front of all their relatives. But in the course of time, there was one who got in line to be baptized that would have utterly surprised John. We can assume it was largely after many others had been baptized But either way, amidst all the people that were going out to be baptized by John, in the course of time, when he would probably least expect it, Mark says that Jesus was baptized by John in the Jordan. And unlike the baptisms that occurred previously among the people of Israel, this was a baptism service that would not be like any other. Mark records for us, starting in verse 10. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. In Matthew's gospel of this account, we get a little more information about this brief conversation between John and Jesus. It was pretty short, to be frank with you. And I'm sure it was a conversation that would stay with John for the rest of his ministry. A brief exchange occurred between Jesus and John. And Jesus expressed to John for why he was being baptized. But here in Mark's gospel... Did you notice that Mark doesn't spend any time on that? Instead, Mark emphasizes not the conversation that happened, but the significance of the event to show the Trinitarian relationship of the Godhead. The Father's voice speaks from heaven. The Son, Jesus, is standing in the waters being adored by his Father. And the Holy Spirit comes down and descends from heaven upon Jesus. Beloved, this is not some long movie reel of part one, two, and three. This is all happening in one scene. Have you ever had one of those evenings? Maybe on a summer vacation? Got that cold, extra sweet tea in your right hand? You're watching the sunset? can feel the sunburn on your back from the day, but then the sky lights up. Purple, yellow, red, white, pink, and it just leaves you 
breathless. Why do experiences like that have that kind of effect on us? When we see something amazing, something beautiful, when we witness something that doesn't ordinarily come our way in a given week or maybe even a whole lifetime, it stops us in our tracks. It leaves us in awe. It leaves an impression upon us. Well, friends, what we are reading here was an encounter, an experience, a scene, unlike any summer sunset our human eyes could ever lay eyes on. A beautiful, lit-up sky in the Bahamas in comparison would look like a child's messy finger painting in comparison to what John witness that day. John had to have been in utter amazement to witness the sky parting, the spirit coming down, hearing the audible voice of God. And could you imagine what this would have been like? John's in the waters his arms are getting a little tired. The last guy was kind of big. You know, it'd take him a while to get him out. Next, you're going to repent? All right, come on in. Confess, repent, baptize, next. Confess, repent, baptize, next. Wait. You're the Christ. Why are you in these waters? You need to baptize me. Could you imagine when John looked into the eyes of Jesus and realized the God-man was in those waters with him on that day? You see, what John witnessed that day was no dream. He wasn't seeing things. This was no trance. This was not some made-up story. This was the inauguration, not of a nation's president, but of the promised Messiah. The anointed one who would be Lord of all the nations. King Jesus. Friends, this is the inbreaking of the kingdom of God, penetrating the river Jordan. Friends, if you know your Bible, what and where is the Jordan River? If you recall, we sang about it in our first hymn today. He's going to lead us over that Jordan River. Friends, years and years ago, there was a man named Joshua who stood in those waters that led the second generation of the Israelites to the promised land. But friends, Yeshua in the book of Joshua was only the preview of the greater Yeshua, Jesus. One Joshua once put his dirty sinful feet in those waters, but a sinless Yeshua was to, was to come. Friends, Yeshua was in the waters with John on that day. God, the Son incarnate, Emmanuel, came to save his people, not merely from Canaanites and Amorites, but he came to conquer our ancient foe. He came to save his people from their sins. And friends, he has promised to bring all his people across that Jordan into the heavenly promised land. The one who would be the hope for all the ends of the earth. The suffering servant whom the Lord delighted in. And the spirit empowered of Isaiah 42.1. The preeminent, sovereign, and enthroned king of Psalm 2. The Lord's anointed. Who is also called the Lord's son. John had once preached about the one coming. Who was stronger than himself. And he would come to baptize with the Holy Spirit. But now John was physically embracing the back and the arm of the Lord and hearing the Father's 
voice speak loud and clear. You know what's so amazing about this scene? And I don't want to take anything away from some of the descriptions. The heavens being parted is pretty amazing. The visual of a dove-like spirit descending upon the Lord. That, that's, that's a once-in-a-lifetime experience, folks. But what's amazing is what John heard that day. What he heard God the Father speak to God the Son loud and clear. You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. You see, in this moment, friends, this isn't some kind of adoption party. Jesus isn't becoming God's son, as if he was adopted from some foster care family in Jerusalem. No. Jesus is being affirmed and adored as God's beloved son. The one in whom the Father already took great delight in and great pleasure in. The Son in whom the Father had already loved in eternity past before the foundation of the world. John 17, 24. The Son who had glory with the Father before the world ever existed. John 17, 5. Here in these baptism waters, beloved, what John heard between the Father and the Son was a heavenly banquet of perfect love. It was the voice of God who is love, emphatically declaring his absolute approval. No hesitation, no reservation, an adoration of his Son. Because when the Father looked at the Son, he saw all the perfect attributes of his holy beauty before him. Here, beloved, naturally raises an important question. If you're a keen Bible student, you should be asking this question. Why did Jesus tell John to baptize him? I mean, did Jesus have sins? that he needed to confess and repent of? Well, no. Remember what the Father had just said. He said, with you, I am well pleased. There was no sin in Jesus' life to repent of. There were no hidden corruptions somewhere down deep in his heart. There were no skeletons in the closet. There was no history on the internet to erase. There were no idle words that he spoke of that needed cleansing or God's forgiveness. You see, the father, when he beheld his son, saw an exact imprint of his holy purity, like a reflection in a mirror, clear as the day God saw in his son what he already knows about himself. Perfect beauty. Perfect goodness. You see, when the Father looked at the Son, Jesus' sweet-smelling aroma of a perfect life radiated back to his Father. Jesus had no sins to confess because dealing with sin is why Jesus came to the earth in the first place. Friends, he left heaven in all his glory and came down to earth, took on a human nature, lived in this fallen and sinful world and got down into the dirty baptismal waters where filthy sinners were calling on God for mercy. Friends, why on earth did Jesus get baptized? Because Jesus, out of obedience to his heavenly Father, was stooping down to the level of wretched sinners and personally identifying with them. 
Friends, Jesus came to seek and save the lost. And in doing so, he came down to our level. The CEO went down to the slums to identify with the people he came to save. The sinless one with whom the Father was well pleased was becoming like us in every way, including going down into the baptismal waters. Yet Jesus, unlike us, remained perfectly obedient to his heavenly Father. He became like us, truly God, yet truly man, and became the perfect mediator between a holy God and sinful man, the man, Christ Jesus. Why is it so important, though? If you were doing your Bible reading, we're talking a few verses, four for the whole sermon, two we've just covered. Why are we marveling? Why are we staring? Why are we looking at all these different angles of this scene of Jesus' baptism? I mean, isn't just some kind of cheap painting people hang up for decorations in their house? Isn't it kind of a quick story we just need to get beyond and get to the casting out demons cards, you know, that are really exciting? Don't worry, they're coming. Author Mark Jones says, God reveals this intra-Trinitarian love so we might realize that in loving the Son, the Father also loves us. You see, when Christ was baptized in those waters, the same waters where sinners confessed their sins, it would also serve as a preview to a baptism of judgment that would one day occur at the cross as Christ was baptized under the wrath of God for the sins of his people. Christ's obedience even all the way back to his baptism by John, would eventually in time lead to his agonizing death. And his obedience to the Father, which was an obedience, sisters, Philippians Bible study, Philippians 2, it was an obedience unto what? Come on, this is your one time to preach and it'd be okay. Unto death. He was obedient unto death, Philippians 2 says would be the sin for the sins of everyone who would turn from their sins and trust in him. Friends, how significant, how important was it then that Christ personally identified with us in order for us to be loved by God through him? The Apostle Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21, for our sake he made him to be sin." who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Peter writes in 1 Peter 3, verse 18, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. Friends, do you want to be found good enough, righteous enough, and pleasing enough in our God's eyes? Here's good news. Then put your faith in Christ alone. You put your faith in Christ alone, you gain Christ's obedience to your account. You and I get Jesus' righteousness. And Jesus not only gives us his righteousness, Jesus brings us to God. Friends, Jesus is the Father's beloved trailblazer sent to personally identify with those he came to save. Friends, if you don't know this Christ, if you know you're not good enough to stand before God on judgment day, turn to Jesus. He gives you his perfect record by faith alone in what he's done for sinners like you and I. Turn to Christ. Be reconciled with God today because today is the day of salvation. But friends, the baptism of Jesus and the Father's affirmation of his love for Jesus as his son was also the commissioning service 
of his heavenly calling. But before Jesus could begin his public ministry, before his public appearance to really the world, starting with Israel, Jesus was called to go where evil and danger and isolation awaited him for 40 days. The wilderness, which leads to point number two. Jesus is our triumphant trailblazer who resisted and overcame our ancient adversary. Look at verses 12 and 13 with me. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days, being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. Here in Mark's gospel, he emphasizes the urgency and eagerness that the triune God was at work after Jesus' baptism. Almost kind of like giving off the idea of a cannonball, getting shot out of a cannon on a war field. The spirit that had descended from heaven upon Jesus, now Mark says, drove him into the wilderness, kicked it into high gear, pressed on the gas. In Matthew and Luke's Gospels, it merely says the Spirit led Jesus as Jesus was full of the Holy Spirit. So really, what is Mark getting at? Is he kind of like a NASCAR fan, you know? loves those kind of driving fast images? Well, you can ask him in heaven. But for now, I think it's really just Mark's way of stating Jesus' readiness to go to battle with a fierce enemy. An old enemy that had defeated many a men and many a women beginning in our human existence. A spiritual foe that the first man And the first woman had utterly been defeated by and sent the whole human race into condemnation and death. Who was that enemy? Notice again what Mark says in verse 13. It was Satan. Satan, as you may recall, is who the Bible describes as our ancient spiritual enemy. He's known as the devil, the tempter, the father of lies, the deceiver of the world, the accuser of the brethren. He's even given the description as one like a lion who prowls around seeking someone to devour. You see, back in Genesis chapters 1 and 2 at the very beginning of creation, the Bible opens up with a perfect world where God and his creation was in perfect harmony. God and man, man and woman, man, woman, and the animals. It was a beautiful, happy life and family. No sin. No drama. No death. No danger. No loneliness. But God gave the man a command to obey. Both a command to enjoy his good blessings, but also a command to do that within the boundaries he had set over the man. If man chose to disobey the Lord, man would face irreversible consequences. The Lord told Adam in Genesis 2, verses 16 and 17, And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Well, in a matter of time, the Lord gave Adam a wife to lead and protect, but Adam would drop the ball. In Genesis chapter 3, it opens up with the scene of the first temptation. A scene where a cryptic serpent, a talking snake, would speak to the woman and put doubts in her mind about the authority and the character of her God. After an exchange 
rather brief exchange, it appears, between the serpent and the woman. And the man passively just standing there. It appears just going with the flow. The temptation to take the bait ensued. They would eat the fruit, believe a lie, and the world would never be the same again. Shame and guilt became our brother and sister. Unhindered fellowship and love were gone. And division and isolation became normal. And the whole human race fell into the condemnation, plunged into the condemnation of our first parents' sin. The curse upon the earth for man's rebellion against God would touch every aspect of our life. Friends, a once perfect garden of Eden now suddenly became a wilderness-like world of paradise lost. But here at the beginning of Mark's gospel, we see Jesus, who Paul says is a type of Adam. In fact, he's the last Adam, 1 Corinthians 15, 45, who would go toe-to-toe with that crafty serpent himself, Satan. In Matthew and Luke's gospel, we read of at least three temptations that Satan held before Jesus' eyes. Twice, Jesus resists Satan. He quotes back from Old Testament scriptures of Deuteronomy to combat the assaults of Satan's arrows. One passage would emphasize the priority of trusting God's word and his provision over distrusting God through fleshly impulses or fleshly appetites. The other was the emphasis on worshiping God alone. And putting no other gods before him, even if it meant suffering for obeying that one true God in the process. The other temptation is a very, very familiar temptation of Satan. In fact, it's all over the New Testament. Satan twisted scripture for selfish ends. You see, Satan needs no MDiv or THM or PhD. Satan knows the Bible better than any preacher. But Satan also has a different agenda with that Bible. He can quote the scripture and even say true things about the scripture, but twist it just a little bit for his own evil ends. By alluding to a familiar psalm, Satan wants to put Jesus on a theological tightrope to see if he really is who he says he is, to get Jesus to compromise, to get Jesus to fall off that type rope, even by sinning one time. But here in Mark's gospel, Mark leaves all the temptations out. He simply says, and he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. No doubt, Mark has in mind the dismal memories of the 40 years of wandering in the wilderness where God tested his people Israel to see what was in their heart, to see whether they would keep his commandments or not. Or perhaps even the couple of times in the Old Testament where Moses and Elijah, men of God, were either fasting or being strengthened by an angel or simply being alone with God for 40 days. Either way, both images point us to Jesus, the true Israel, the faithful son, the greater than Moses prophet. Mark wants his readers to understand that and for us today to not behold the temptations and the details of them, but he wants us to behold the triumph of Jesus over those temptations. You see, here our Lord personally identifies with his people in baptism. And then guess what? Jesus personally identifies with his people by the temptations he suffered by Satan. Brothers and sisters, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ today, let me give you a newsflash theology lesson 
that something supernatural happened to you, even if you didn't realize it. The scriptures tell us that from the time you were born, there is a spiritual war waging against your soul. But it's not a war you can see with your eyes. It's not a war like you can turn on CNN or Fox or read about in history books. This is a war that's fought on very different grounds with very different weapons. This is a supernatural enemy with a supernatural agenda. This is the spiritual forces in the heavenly places. This is demonic spirits that strive and fight to keep you deceived in unbelief and keep you in rebellion to God. But friends, if you are a Christian today, something supernatural happened in God's sovereign timing. He whipped off the blindfold. He unshackled those chains. He delivered you from your sins, the captivity of those sins, and the captivity of Satan. Friends, when you put your faith in the gospel, he gave you eyes you didn't have before. He gave you a joy and a freedom to serve God you couldn't have before. You see, salvation might be carrying a cross, and it's hard and it's heavy, but it's light when you realize that Jesus has already gone before us. Jesus calls the weakest of the bunch, the worst of sinners, to taste and see that he is good. Brothers and sisters, now that you are one of God's children, friends, in one sense, the war is over for your soul. You are secure in God's love. You are in the beloved. You are kept eternally. And one day you will be brought safely home. That's our good shepherd. He's promised that. But friends, we should hold tightly to those promises, but we should also hold tightly to a warning. At the same time, there still is an evil one. Satan himself and his deceitful minions will continue to assault every soldier of Jesus Christ that dares to stand boldly against the schemes of the devil. You see, trailblazers are heroes, Because they do something virtuous and history-shaping that's never been done before. They step out in front, taking on great risk, putting themselves in imminent danger to do what will in the end carve out a way for others to follow. And friends, the same goes for us in the kingdom of God. From pastors to parents... From missionaries to the average man and woman sitting in this building this morning, our ancient adversary despises us because he's always despised the Christ. Listen, he knows he can't steal you from that good shepherd, but he will wreak his ugly head to attack you. He will violently oppose you. And friends, church history is littered with examples when men and women of God stand boldly for the Jesus of Nazareth, they too will be put in a wilderness to face spiritual darkness. In church history, one example of a bold trailblazer for Jesus was William Tyndale. William Tyndale was born in 1494 and one day would grow up to have a driving passion to see the Bible translated from the Greek and Hebrew into ordinary English that would be available for every person in England to read. Through the tutors and inspiration of others before him, he would begin this trailblazing work when he was 28 years old and eventually finish the English translation of the Greek and New Testament when he was 32 years old. By the time he was 40, He published a revised New Testament, thus providing for the first time ever in history, the Greek New Testament was translated into English. And for the first time ever, the New Testament in English was available in print form. Before Tyndale, there were only handwritten manuscripts in the Bible in English. These manuscripts we owe to the work of inspiration 
an inspiration of John Wycliffe and the Lollards from 130 years earlier. But for a thousand years, friends, hear that. For a thousand years, the only translation of the Greek and Hebrew Bible was the Latin Vulgate. And few people could understand it, even if they had the chance to access it. So how significant do you think was Tyndale's work? Tyndale's Bible and writings were the kindling that set the fire of the Reformation in England. The Bible literacy of the English-speaking world would never be the same ever again. But friends, however, when a man or woman of God is greatly used of God, demonic opposition will come. You see, for Tyndale, it was illegal in his day to have the Bible translated into English. For a whole host of reasons that were political and doctrinal in nature, the Roman Catholic Church condemned what Tyndale did and labeled him a heretic. The Latin scriptures and the Roman Catholic system at the time had perpetuated things like a works-based salvation and works-based understanding of justification, emphasizing things like penance, which had financial and political underpinnings to Rome's advantage. But because Tyndale was committed to seeing the Bible read and plainly understood, because Tyndale realized that no one could understand the saving work of Jesus by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, Tyndale resisted the norms of his day, risking his life and freedom so that sinners might know the good news that we hear today. What did it cost William Tyndale? under those countless hours of revising that New Testament, putting it into English? What did it cost him to write out all these things by hand and to see them passed on to others that would be bold for the faith? He fled his homeland in 1524 at the age of 30 and was burned at the stake in 1536 at the age of 42. After being locked up for 18 months, As an isolated and weakened prisoner, his verdict was sealed in August 1536. He was formally condemned as a heretic. Then in early October, he was tied to the stake and then strangled by the executioner. And then afterward, he consumed in the fire. Friends, William Tyndale might have been labeled a heretic, by his opponents. But William Tyndale was a hero. He was a trailblazer for King Jesus. He was truly one who carved out a way, a new way, a new path for scores and scores of generations who speak and read English to understand the word of God. And he did that. And he was able to do that. He was able to go to the stake as his body lit up in flames because his Lord had already gone to the wilderness for him. You see, Jesus already stared Satan in the face and Jesus punched Satan in the mouth, as my old linebacker coach used to say. He resisted all his temptations, remained obedient to God. And throughout Jesus' entire ministry, as we'll study through the Gospel of Mark, Satan would continue to unleash his demonic spirits. Temptation after temptation, assault after assault, slander after slander, betrayal after betrayal to shut Jesus' ministry down. But at the cross, where it appeared Satan had the upper hand, For a few hours and for a few days, Jesus got up from that grave. You see, at the cross, Jesus put the devil to open shame, canceling the debt of sin that we had against God as he gave a fatal death blow to the head of that ancient serpent. Christ's resurrection from the dead then secured the gift of the Holy Spirit he would give to his people. And friends, that's how we resist temptation today. You and I will lose all day, every day, 
in our own strength to the arrows of Satan's quiver. But by the power of the Holy Spirit, the Spirit who descended from above and upon Christ, that John says would be baptized into the life, the soul, the heart of all his people. By the Spirit of the living God, you can, Christian, resist the temptation to sin. Friends, sin is difficult to fight against. But sometimes our greatest enemy is not Satan, it's ourself. Friends, repent of murmuring about your sin and remind yourself of the power of God available to us as we yield to the Spirit, as we look to the Word, and we live not by bread alone, but by what? Every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. You see, Christ's victory over Satan secured our victory over Satan as well. Christ's perfect obedience, as he personally identified with us, made him a perfect and sympathetic high priest to help us in our times of weakness. Friends, what temptations are you facing today? In what ways... Can you see the enemy working overtime to knock you off the narrow way and get your eyes off Jesus? Is it holding on to a grudge? Is it believing a false gospel from a dead religion? Is it being afraid to confront a professing Christian who's in sin? Being fearful, you'll lose the friendship if you do it. Is it being afraid to stand bold for the truth in your workplace and in your home? Is it hiding an addiction from others? Thinking that if you share it with others, nobody would help you. Is it living in the past? not trusting God's sovereign goodness over your life in the present. Friends, the snares and the traps of our ancient foe are many. But we have a faithful high priest, don't we? Listen to these promises if you are tempted with sin. Hebrews 2, verses 14 to 18. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Or how about 1 Corinthians 10, 13? Paul says, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. What about James chapter 4, starting in verse 7? Submit yourselves, therefore, to God like Christ. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Brothers and sisters, no matter what temptation or hour of testing you are facing today, I hope you've learned from the songs, the prayers, and the text of God's word. You're not alone. There is one who has trailblazed before us who went to the wilderness, isolated, in danger, staring the eyes of our enemy in the face. Jesus, even with the wild animals present, was being ministered to by angels. 
angels, the book of Hebrews says, mysteriously, and I can't figure it out, have been sent out throughout the world to serve and protect all of us who would inherit salvation. You see, Jesus is the captain of our salvation. He is the author and finisher of our faith. Friends, if the Father is well-pleased with the Son, then what does he say about those who love his Son? He says, he is well-pleased with you. Because in Christ, it is always well with your soul. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you now and we ask that you would, by your Spirit, apply what we've heard today from your Word to our hearts. Lord, I do pray that anyone that is ensnared or trapped in a temptation that they feel like they have no way to escape from, Lord, show them, give them eyes to see it. Lord, I pray that we as the body of Christ would be that way of escape to help a brother or sister in their time of need. Lord, we ask now that we would sing the very truth of this hymn in light of what we've heard today, that it is well with your people's souls. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.